a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges, and I want to thank you all for joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. The Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create space for the uncovering of the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact. It is less about the outcomes or results of our actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illumining one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Howard Fisher and Eric Jacobson of Gratitude Railroad. Together, they founded Gratitude Railroad, a community of investors committed to helping solve environmental and social problems. Eric and Howard met each other at Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. Eric is currently the co-founder, uh, currently is the co-founder of Dolphin Capital, a private equity firm which invests in high growth companies in the Mountain West region. And Howard is the founder and chief executive officer of Basso Capital Management. Welcome, Howard, and welcome, Eric. Nice to be here. Can you give us some context of um, what led you guys, both of you, from my understanding, didn't know each other in advance of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Yep. So um, what led you to, individually, what led you to the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative, and then once you got there, where was there a potential aha moment, or where was the aha moment that you guys might want to do something together? That's two questions. You want to go first, Eric? You want me to go? <laughs> you go first. So um, my journey to Harvard really began in the financial crisis of 2008, um, which had a major impact on my business, my net worth. Um, my well-being, my, my emotions, and um, following the financial crisis, I spent a few years trying to rebuild my business, um, and in about 2011, 2012, I began to think that we weren't going to be able to recover, and I realized that I needed something better to do with my time in my life, and serendipitously, I saw an advertisement for the Harvard program in my alumni magazine, and I applied assuming that, like it had many times before or several times before, Harvard would turn me down. I got in, didn't know what to do, wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to go, um, but I did, um, and, and, and it was magic. It was, it, was, it was one of the best years of my life, including finding great lifelong friends like Eric. Yeah, and I got there... Um... I was running Dolphin Capital, and one of our investment thesis was, could we make more money by investing in companies that, 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 were, that were not just making a product and capturing market share and generating a return, but that were actually doing something beneficial for humanity? Um, 
And it was a part of our investment thesis that was very hard to define and figure out and understand and track and measure and whatever. And I was complaining to my wife that it was hard. And she saw the ad for the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. And she tore it out of a magazine and handed it to me and said, here, Eric, you should go to Harvard. They'll, they'll teach you everything you need to know. Um, it wasn't that, um, but it was a really magical uh, magical experience in a magical year. So when you guys use the term magical, what does magical look like? When you say it's a magical year, was it a retreat? Was it uh, just sort of give me a context of what magic looks like and feels like? I think, was, I think it was a different journey for both of us. I went there first just to go back to school. I, I sometimes I describe it now as a sabbatical year. And in, in a very different process than Eric, I ended up being there for three semesters. And I took something like 25 or 27 different classes. And I put myself in classes that this 50-something-year-old New York hedge fund guy didn't really belong in. Like I took two Buddhist scripture classes in the Divinity School. And I just, I just, just exposing myself to a whole nother, a whole nother world. And that learning experience and that growth and the people I met and professors I met just changed my entire outlook on life. And the last my wife, who I've been with for uh, for over 40 years at this point, says the person she knows now today after Harvard is a much more warm, thoughtful, um, loving person than I was before that. And a lot of things go on to change you over your life. But the learning helped. The people I met, I went there the first day, I looked around the room, and I thought everybody in the room was smarter, richer, and better looking than me. And, and then over time, as I got to know them, they're just – this incredible group of people um, that I enjoy spending time with. So I've got a new whole outlook in life. I've got a whole new group of friends. And the goal of the program is for you to find something, they call it more towards the social good, to dedicate the rest of your life to. I came to study the environment. That was my my core area of focus. Eric, as he, he began to allude to, wanted to study what he was calling compassionate capitalism together we, we created this idea of Gratitude Railroad, and it's an important part of my life every single day. And the magic is that I have this life, and not only have all these great friends that I met through Harvard, but all the people that I've met through Gratitude Railroad are wonderful, warm, thoughtful, passionate, smart, and, and harnessing capitalism for the benefit of mankind. So it's just this, my life is just so much better because of it. Eric, I want to ask you to piggyback off that. Uh, first of all, I want to know what the magic looked like for you. But you also talked about it was hard about making the connection. You had this thesis that potentially um, could could creating social good be actually a wise thing in terms of business allocation. Um, why is that a hard connection? Um, but first of all, and then did the magic that you experienced at Harvard help you sort of um, soften around the idea that you needed a clear connection, that, that you're more, that you're willing to be uh, comfortable with the mosaic of, um, you know, potential mysterious factors that are also working in the world that you may never know. Yeah. Um, what order do I want to take those? So let me start with the magic and then come back um, to the mosaic. So, so for me at Harvard, um, I think I was sort of classically trained in my life from, from childhood to get a good education. 
um, to get a good job, to try to make good money, to try to live a good life. Um, I had a sort of a very tradition of a classic education. Um, and in business, I was, I sort of had these, this very clear goal of where I was trying to get to all the time. Um, and thought I had a lot of control over that. And, and in spending time at Harvard, um, it was really the first time in my life where I could just stop and ponder and think for hours every day and, and not have to feel like I had to deliver some output or goal mm-hmm. tomorrow in order to accomplish some X or Y. It was a period of time for me to just open up my mind and think and learn what does it really mean to be a leader? Um, what is business? What does it look like? Is it compassionate? Could it be compassionate? Um, and so the, that was very magical for me, the ability to really spend a lot of time thinking. Um, and then the people, Howard mentions the people, it's, it's, for me, it was the people at, at Harvard. It was the people in my cohort. It was professors that I interacted with. It was connections that the professors connected me to, um, that having sort of this Harvard business card allowed me to um, have discussions that were just, I'm not sure I could have if it was Eric Jacobson making that phone call. Um, To students, I spent a lot of time in the education, uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education with students there. Um, uh, it, 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 It just was a really extraordinary mixture of people and time. Um, which for me, I'd never really been able to have before. So relating that back to sort of the mosaic and, and the connections, yeah, I think I got much more comfortable um, maybe in life, but certainly in impact, understanding that it's hard. People don't really know the answers. We don't really know where we're going all the time. Um, people who think they have all the answers probably don't. Um, and that you know, all kinds of things like, are we trying to get to perfection or are we just trying to improve wherever we are today? How do you measure heart? Um, how do you measure compassion? How do you, how do you think about those things in a traditional business context? When I was classically trained on things like, if you can't measure it, you know, you can't fix it. Um, so yeah, I think the process very much helped me recognize that it's a mosaic and it's complicated and Frankly, that's okay for me. That's okay. How much of, so both of you have started off sharing what your intention was in terms of getting to Harvard and the reason why you went there and the experience that you had, but how did your intentionality um, evolve while there and then merge while there to all of a sudden say, it's one thing to do a group project together while in a particular time and space. There's another thing to do to say, hey, let's go co-create this after we leave. So I'm just interested in how your intentionality has evolved and then materialized um, into saying, hey, we should start convening, of all things, other people to actually start having this conversation as well. You want to go first, Eric? Um, so I guess you're really asking how did how did what was our aha? Sort of rephrasing the question: How what was our aha? How did we how did we decide to intentionally do something together? Um, I think that was a. I, I don't know if for me there was one singular aha. 
um, I think as a human, um, I was really uh, um, attracted to Howard and who he was and how he thought and where he was coming from and the way he approached life and the questions he asked. Just He was just an incredibly fascinating and interesting um, um, human being. Um, I think we had really amazing conversations, you know, challenging both of our previous assumptions about business and making an impact and, you know, how do we do it and where does it go? I think if there was a connection uh, for me, um, and Howard should probably tell the story, but Howard um, was and is, was and is, is very fixated on the environment and um, how do we reverse the impacts of uh, the effects of global warming? And Howard did a lot of research uh, on a gentleman by the name of Alan Savory. And one of Alan Savory's uh, theories is that if we intensively rotationally grazed all the cows on the planet, uh, we could sequester enough carbon to reverse the effects of global warming. Um, and so Howard was sharing his learning and talking to me about it. And I, I sort of just made a, maybe a little bit of a flippant comment. I said, listen, if it's not profitable, intensive rotational grazing isn't profitable. You'll never convince all the farmers on the planet to do it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, th these two things have to work symbiotically together. Um, and when that happens, that's pretty cool. And that for me is when I think we really started talking about, okay, how do we blend what we know, which is business and finance um, um, with what we're both really passionate about, which is, you know, trying to make a difference somehow. Yeah, I like the yeah. Alan. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring up Alan Savory Institute. Uh, Sally Calhoun's a good friend of mine. Uh, she's she's uh, she's pretty instrumental in really carrying that flag as well. Yeah. Um, well, Alan Howard. did a TED Alan did a TED talk in February of 2013 um, that I learned about at a uh, event that was at Harvard. It was actually sponsored by a son, uh, a friend of one of my sons, who was actually at Cornell at the time, but came to Harvard to share this programming. And that was really a major flip of my mind, this whole idea that these animals who in many worlds, many people believe are only negative for the planet can actually um, be, a, be a, a planetary good. And then, you know, I look at it and, you know, Eric and I have our own ways of looking at this. I'd say one thing that's really important, um, Gratitude Railroad is much more than a convening organization. Um, and it really came out of, Eric had this idea to gather some people in Park City in the summer of 2013 was the idea of beginning to explore impact investing. We both cajoled a handful of friends to join us, and Eric recruited somebody he had been learning from from Pittsburgh, one of these MacArthur Genius guys, and we got a guy, Matthew Weatherly Light, showed up. We don't even know how we got him to show up. Um, we began to talk about this and learn about this, and, and, and we felt that this was a great way to go, and Eric really, you know, through Tonic especially and the 100 percenters, decided to move his money towards impact. And we thought that we could take what we had begun to learn and share it with our communities. You know, there are people out there who've been doing it for a long time. Uh, we also felt that what we saw of the industry at that time, somewhat naively, um, because we certainly learned there's a lot more that has, has gone on well, well before us in incredibly capable ways. We thought we could bring our, what we'll call our Wall Street attitudes to impact, which sometimes gets, certainly gets me in trouble um, in certain rooms. Um, but this is really an evolution um, that began with the two of us just enjoying each other's company and spending time together and figuring out what we could do best. So I, I, one thing, I basically, the way 
I like to describe it too, is Eric and I came to a couple of conclusions over the course of that year that we were at Harvard together. One is that capitalism is a solution to most of mankind's problems, that the philanthropic model is largely broken. It has its role in the world, but capitalism, we think, can do something better. We thought that our experiences in life as investors, as fund managers, as entrepreneurs, made us good at making investment decisions, made us good at identifying and hiring and managing investment talent, and made us good at marketing financial projects and businesses in which we believe. And we thought we could put that all together in Graduate Railroad. We also look at Graduate Railroad to some extent as an extension of our experience at Harvard, where we can take in a more narrow sense, where Harvard, you could study education, you could study healthcare, you could study the not-for-profit world, you go to the business, you do anything you want, which is absolutely amazing and incredible. And anybody out there listening who's considering it, just go apply. And I'm, I'm sure Eric and I, we'd both be happy to talk to you about it. Um, now I forgot what I was saying. Um, so Howard, Howard, that, I want to, I, I, I want you to expand on something. I want to, I, I, I want to understand a little bit more on why you think a Wall Street attitude would have been beneficial to the space, and then at the same time, in a pair, while answering that question, to understand like what limitations are there as well to the Wall Street attitude in this space. That's a, uh, that's a good question, you know. Um, you know, and again, with all due respect, and I have this conversation a lot, and I always caveat, with all due respect to everybody's out there that's trying and doing things, whether they started last week, they're going to start next week, or they started 25 years ago, like Peter, like uh, like Jonathan Rose or, or, or Peter Stein, you know, what we saw just didn't fit in the kinds of discipline and practice and focus that we were used to, whether that was whether it was unfair or accurate, naive, we can debate, but we felt there was room for an opportunity to invest in a manner that was maybe more focused on financial discipline and financial return, while at the same time taking in all the good things that we as impactor impact investors want. And it's a very complicated discussion. And, and you know, sometimes I, um, I get confused myself. Yeah, I just finished reading um, the, the Purpose of Capital by Jed Emerson, who's pushing it. You mentioned John Fullerton, who uh, pushed us really hard when he spoke at the conference a couple of weeks back, including talking about having a significant dose of philanthropic allocation within your net worth. But also, he called it a moonshot. Why don't you invest in things that may be really risky? Not that this is a totally new idea. That may not meet your financial discipline, but if it works, it's really going to make change. Um, but I, I would just say that certainly speaking for me alone, what I saw as opportunities to invest didn't directly appeal to me at that time. And having been in the hedge fund business for 35 years, I felt I could bring that experience and practice into what I wanted to see in an impact investment opportunity set. So Howard, if I read between the lines, you're suggesting that what you saw in terms of underwriting and diligence was weaker than what you felt comfortable with. Is that uh, sort uh, of... I, I think that's that's a very accurate way of reading in between the lines, yes. Now, yeah. again, I just want to say this. You know, Since then, I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of people. I've just mentioned two, right? Peter Stein and Jonathan Rose, both of whom I've invested with. They've been doing this 
for an incredibly long time, incredibly successfully. Uh, but at that time, my limited purview brought me to that conclusion, yes. Do you characterize your life as, as similar in terms of Wall Street attitude? You did mention classically trained, um, Eric. Just like to understand a little bit more about uh, where, um, is there something you would add in terms of the benefit of that, bringing that to the space, and then also understanding potentially the trained incapacities as well. I'm trained in finance as well, um, originally, and then went into the humanities um, and then started to get exposed to my own trained incapacity. So just wondering on how the impact space has really invited you in to understand where you've been able to contribute and then where you sort of see like, oh, my training is actually a handicap here. And, and if I don't pump the brakes a little bit here, I'm not going to be able to see an opportunity or be able to go down this path. Uh, I'll try to take that. I might, I might take it a little bit of a different direction. Um, I believe that, that Howard's and my training and others now in the gratitude communities um, training generally coming from um, traditional finance and or, you know, CEOs of traditional businesses, that that experience bringing it into impact, um, um, not just us, but a lot of people coming from that perspective into impact can give it credibility to other people like us who may not believe that impact has a lot of credibility. And the reason they may or may not believe that impact has a lot of credibility is because there's a mantra out there that you must give up returns in order to have an impact. That's a very entrenched sort of traditional way of thinking. And the more of us that come from that traditional world to impact uh, and invest and generate impact and generate returns that we can point to and show, no, look, this is credible. Um, the more I think we hopefully can get more and more people to come from sort of that traditional way of thinking into the world of impact. I think from my perception is that historically, um, the impact world was from a uh, let's do good and let's figure out how to scale it, uh, sort of coming from the other side of the bell curve. And, and I would argue today we haven't even bridged the gap. We've come a long way since 2013, um, but we need to figure out how to bridge the gap and how to prove as, a, as, a, as an economic system that this symbiotic relationship between you know, making an impact um, and, 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 and generating returns is actually a wonderful thing and very possible and not it's one or the other and they offset each other. I don't know if that answered the question, but it's yeah. sort of the way I think about it. What? So you guys have both mentioned um, John Fullerton uh, was was pushing the envelope at your most recent gathering. Howard, you mentioned you're currently reading Jed Emerson's book, The Purpose of Capital. Obviously, those two guys are um, stretching the possibility of capital uh, in their own suggestions, their own way of doing it. Help me understand what goes through you while you cognitively may agree. What keeps you potentially from leaping 
as fo- as uh, forward as much as you potentially would want to, or maybe you don't. Um, whenever you hear somebody sort of like, wow, I thought I was really down the path of impact, but it seems like these guys are laying a lot more bricks along the path and there's much more to travel. Um, is there a part of you that says, like, where might be the hang up? Where might be sort of like the like, oh, I'm going to hold back until I see something. Just trying to understand what it is within internally or cognitively, mostly internally, that keeps you from accelerating your movement down the path. And maybe I could be wrong. Maybe you are moving as fast as you want to. But I think all of us who are on this journey have people talk to us and go, and I was like, wow, I am pulling back my chips. I am pulling back my my efforts just slightly because I'm, I don't know this area. I'm fearful. Um, ego, identity, that's not who I am. Um, or my shadows not letting me get there. Yeah, I can, I can answer. Let me take it hard first because I've thought a lot about this question. So I need to give a little background as I understand sort of John Fullerton's and Jed Emerson's sort of pushing or where they are, quote, further down the road to impact. And I may have it wrong. So they're much bigger thinkers and much smarter people than me. I'm just trying to catch up to their thinking. Um, But to some extent, if I think through sort of my thoughts of the evolution of capitalism, right, you know, I I sort of started that um, capitalism was there to make a profit for shareholders. Um, and that was the only thing that mattered and the, and the key driver. And any money spent on anything that wasn't that was a detriment to profit. And that that's how the system worked and needed to work. And it was the government and nonprofits that were responsible for sort of benefiting. me. That's sort of where I started, right? That's my training. And through Harvard, I sort of took this step that, wait a minute, you know, there may be a lot of benefits off balance sheet or, or off your income statement to treating employees well that aren't reflected in the cost of treating them well per se, but will benefit the organization. I think, I think a lot of capitalists understand sort of that next step and that next evolution. And, and I certainly get and understand sort of the theory of stepping into a, uh, um, a circular economy, pricing and externalities. And there's sort of much more we can and need to do in our economic system to keep pushing it forward. I drink that Kool-Aid. I understand that. I understand and believe in the moonshot, right? That there are certain things that you invest in that that might change the world. And then there are certain things you invest in that might just be incremental improvements. I think what I understood from, from John is we need to get beyond just circular. We need to get to regenerative. Like we need to have the economic system not just be pricing and externality so it's a closed loop, but we need to like build businesses that are actually adding back. Um, if we're going to get out of the mess we're in, um, that's really interesting to me that, that, so for me, intellectually, I can get my brain around that concept. I think that's quite a ways out there. And then the question comes, okay, what's the best for society and the system? Should we incrementally move there, you know, getting incrementally better over time, or do we need to blow up the system? Because we don't have time and we need to jump right to sort of the dream. And that's where I start to break down in my own thinking. Um, 
um, and get a bit sort of overwhelmed because if it's a blowing up of the system, um, forget me, that's a, that's a scary prospect for everyone. That's, and I, I know there are a lot of pe- people who believe. Eric just froze. Yeah. Eric, you want me to jump in? Yeah, um, go ahead and so jump now, in. So now, to Howard. my personal oh. hesitation. He's good. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Eric. You froze. Go ahead, Howard. Jump in. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Am I, am I back? Sorry about that. It is definitely my internet. So for me personally, then the question is, if I jump in full force, at what point do I personally lose credibility in trying to bring a bunch of people along? And that's probably my own hang up. Um, do I want to be a drastic change maker or do I want to be sort of incrementally moving? And the answer to that depends, I think, personally, but also on our time frame, which we could debate for a while. Sure. Long answer, but I thought about it a lot. Yeah, no, I can tell. Howard? I uh, just I want to I just jump in right where Eric ended first. I think that's a very important point. If part of the goal of Gratitude Railroad is to make this change in investors as to how they look at their investing, we can be extreme, right? We could, and, and, and you know, John Fulton, good friend, brilliant, and we can tell everybody that that's what they have to do. But the kinds of people that Eric and I are bringing along from the edge, they're not ready to make that. Let them to start that journey by investing in something that makes them very comfortable. That's not a leap. And as they learn, or they listen to John Fulton, they read Jed Emerson, or they do something else that may push them a little bit further along, whatever that means, whether that's a positive or negative, I think that's really important. Um, one of the things I'd like to say in, in terms of my own personal investing, and there's a struggle, like what is the right line and what is the right investment process? I, I suffer, and I talk about this a lot with the life coach that I share with Eric. I talk about irrational financial insecurity. So I feel that I don't have enough. Um, and therefore, how I manage that corpus is important for the needs that I have, the needs I perceive to have, or the psychological aspect of having more or less. So to some extent, I am dealing with that issue. Um, I, had a, I had a long dinner with, with, with a person who I'm trying to bring more actively into the Gratitude Railroad community. Very wealthy, very smart, very successful, has an incredibly active and, and, and brilliant investment process of his own. And we had this long discussion of what is impact investing. And basically, he said that every dollar that you return to an investor reduces the good that the business does. We didn't really come to a conclusion. And it's easy to say, yeah, of course, we all know that, that if I have no return, the business has more money, but overall net net, it's deeply embedded in May that unless a business is run for profit, and it can have a bigger overarching right belief system, it can be a conscious capitalist company, it can be a B Corp, it can be a benefit corp, it can manage role stakeholders, but if it's still not run to meet a bottom line perspective, I think it takes an edge away and you know you, you reduce your ability to compete. Reduce your ability to attract employees, your ability to motivate them. So I think it's really inherently important that the company, in addition to whatever mission and purpose and value systems it has, is boldly and openly focused on making profits. How we distribute those profits, we can discuss. But that's an important discipline. um, I mean, let me... 
let me ask you a question and you touched on a little bit, Howard, how much is as a result of being um, a wealth holder in America, is the corpus an inertia to actually jumping to the dream? Meaning that the comfort level, yes. the older we get, um, you know, we frame, we have our ideological reasons. We said, oh, people get to jump in a different times and and i agree with all that but at a personal level not a not a gratitude railroad level but this corpus that that you have how much of it is actually an inertia from jumping to the dream is the dream like isn't there a part of the inner child and the inner dream and the inner um maker inside of you that really wants to animate your full existence sometimes come face to face with the corpus and say like, wow, you are awfully heavy on my life. I spent an enormous amount of time servicing you. My ego services you. And so let's just sort of drop in and dwell there for a bit and be really weigh in on the weight of the corpus. Uh, so I totally get where you're going and I I need to give a little bit of background about the weight of the corpus for me. Um, so I'm a relatively recent corpus owner. Um, so I haven't had that weight for very long. <laughs> um, um, I still um, carry a sense of ego uh, uh, and pride about having um, been able to generate the corpus. Um, so I'm still sort of dwelling in the glory a little bit as opposed to uh, spending a bunch of time on the weight of it. Um, that said, I am really thinking about the weight of it and, um, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but, you know, I heard Charlie Kleisner talk about getting to hundred percent impact and, and it was like a two by four hit me by the side of the head, alongside of the head. I'm like, of course I have to do that. I mean, it wasn't even a, it, it wasn't a long um, process for Charlie's words to sort of resonate into me. Um, so for me, the weight of it is, okay, wh what, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a hundred percent impacted and how do I reconcile that over the things that Howard mentions, which is, you know, I have a home and I have three kids that are, uh, you know, in college and I have, um, you know, two dogs that I got to, right. How do I, and I'm going to stop earning income at some point and I'm still going to need to, you know, eat and, you know, how do I reconcile all of this? Um, and, and what does a hundred percent impact mean, which relates back to sort of John Fullerton's, and Jed Emerson's sort of pushing us. What does all that mean? So I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I think about it, right? Where is it? And, you know, sometimes I'm like, should I just write a check and give it to somebody much smarter than me and have them figure it out um, as opposed to me trying to learn all this on my own? So anyway, I go through all these personal gyrations for sure. Gymnastics. Howard? I, I don't feel the corpus is a burden at all. I feel it's a wonderful, a wonderful privilege. It allows me to do things and 
And, 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 you know, when I first met Eric, we talked a lot about spray and pray investing, and I was certainly guilty of that. And, and, and for me, that we've developed Gratitude Railroad and we've got not only a team of really talented investment analysts, but between the board of directors, which are the owners of Gratitude Railroad, and our partners group, which is a, a dozen or so wealthy families that are committed to investing actively alongside of us, I'm spending time and have the resources to make pretty reasonable, thoughtful investment decisions. And I'm happy to make them. Um, I feel that I'm not struggling with where I am, though. You know, I think John Fullerton released me a little bit back to if you really love it and it really can change the world, why not invest in it? So maybe I'm a little bit freer with writing that next check. There's a company that presented at the conference this year that has, a, a, a in my opinion, a game-changing process in the, let's call it the death industry. I'm going to invest in this company. I probably shouldn't say it publicly so because it's going to make it harder to negotiate a transaction, but I'm going to invest regardless of where the team comes out. But I believe it, and maybe I'm too optimistic, every company we invest in, if it's successful, will have a great return on capital. If they lose money and they go out of business, I could have written another check to another not-for-profit. I would much rather write off an investment to this company in three or five years, hopefully not, and use that deduction then rather than write a check to my university where it doesn't do anything or to another religious organization. That, to me, is so much more important, rewarding. And, and I live through this ability to know that I can make a lot of money on the intellectual stimulation from dealing with the entrepreneur and learning about the company and seeing how we can help. It's all wonderful. So um, I like where we're at and where I'm at in the process. I don't really struggle with it at all. Granted, again, could I make less money? Sure, I could make less money. Um, do I have enough? Sure, I have enough. Do I believe I have enough? No. But um, <laughs> that's a struggle for most people like me, I think, and Eric. So, AC, do you guys find your, um, let me see, it, it's part of your, like, I want to live with impact, not just investing with impact. And Howard, you've touched on this, the irrational financial security. How do you navigate, um, and I'm circling back because I still think that there's more here, when enough is enough. Um, so you mentioned that money allows you to do X, Y, Z, Howard, in terms of allows you to meet entrepreneurs, invest in certain companies, and it's not a weight that you're claiming. Yet at the same time, I heard you say that there's a, a potential gap between my perception of what I need and what I really actually need. And I guess where I'm really going at is this idea of how far can we get if we're not really reconciling the way we're feeling inside with where our ego or our our way of um, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that at a certain point, do you can you imagine that if you were able to reconcile where enough is enough, that actually may leverage your impact even more? in the world where it may actually work in reverse to say, Hey, I'm really actually not what I think I know about being able to use my resource for impact is actually not as much leverage as potentially I could have. 
And it really comes down to understanding this conversation about what is enough and how to actually honor the enoughness of life. And I'm going to add another layer to this. Would our community benefit by having ongoing parallel conversations about the finitude of life, meaning that if we really honored the fact that we're that just because we're here today, we're not going to be here tomorrow, that that might actually complement and help us sort of understand these questions and, get, and actually go deeper with our impact. I, I certainly think if people have honest conversations with themselves about what's enough, that it frees up, potentially frees up a very large portion of their wealth that can then be moved to impact somehow for sure. Um, um, it's, uh, it's, and it's an interesting exercise, right? I've tried to go through it. I can't claim that I know the answers. Um, I've tried to go through it, but I think for me, it's, it, it's, it's been an interesting, I'll just share one small learning. Um, we were at the hundred percent impact event, um, at Charlie's in Big Sur. I don't know if you were there, Gino, but they presented the T100 report data of, I can't remember, 91 portfolios. And, and again, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but, but the percentage of assets in um, public equities was way lower as a percentage than I thought. And I happened to be sitting next to someone and I kind of pondered it under my breath. And the person sitting next to me said, well, I'm, I have even less than that. And he said, because I have enough fixed income to pay for everything I could ever want to pay for. And therefore, um, everything else can be in the highest impact asset class I can possibly find, whether it's liquid or illiquid, because I have enough liquidity just from sort of fixed income growth. For me, it was like this giant light bulb went off, right? I'm like, wow, I need to really think about this. I need to think about you know, each asset class that I have and its ability to have impact. And I believe they don't all have the same impact. I think you can get a lot more impact by investing in a private directed investment and by being in a public equity, whether or not I buy Exxon Mobil, I, I don't think really makes any difference. But if I take that same amount of money and put it into a cool startup, I could potentially make a lot of money and have a lot of impact. So I do think the thought process around sort of what do you need, what does one need, and how does that then reflect over your wealth, whether it's asset allocation or charitable donations or, you know, impact or liquidity or whatever is really important for people to think about. I, I don't know how many people are thinking about it, but I think it's important for people to think about. I'm going to push back a little bit, Gino. How do we know what impact is? Why is it my investing in company XYZ not as impactful as a different company? How do we measure that? You know, I look at the companies we invest in, whole impact growth. How do we measure impact? I, I, I think Eric and I agree that we sort of know it when we see it. And if we can describe a company and the way I look at it, and, the, and there is no doubt that there is an emotional aspect to it, but if its product or service does a good, whether it's environmental or social, that's enough for me. And so to say that my investment in, let's say, a cross-laminated timber company 
is not as impactful if I invested in a company that does lending to small businesses that are women minority owned? Who's to judge? And, and maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's that edge that you know I certainly bring that you know in the impact world. Well, of course, lending money to small businesses owned by minorities and women is much more impactful than doing something in the construction industry. All right, well, then maybe I'm, you know, the arrogant Wall Street asshole that maybe some people think I am. But um, I think that what we're doing, what I'm doing, works really well. Could I do more? And I appreciate your question. Right. Could I take more risk from one bucket and put it in riskier buckets? Sure. And, and, and what would happen if I lost that money? You know, life probably wouldn't change. I look into, I see so many incredible business opportunities to invest in, some of which require far more capacity than I could possibly have. So I keep looking at my portfolio and say, well, when are you going to exit, right? You've got some things that are really marked up nicely, and then we can redeploy the capital. So I would rather make, you know, another, whatever, let's call it five or 10 or $15 million or something, and then begin to continue to push. Where's that edge, right? Again, where's my irrational financial being? Where is that balance sheet number? I don't know. And you know, the number is always bigger, of course, for at least for me, it seems to be. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's hard to say that I could do more impact if I took some money out of my hedge fund business and put more of it someplace else. Graduate Rail typically doesn't do anything outside the U.S. There's a lot of trouble outside the, the U.S., a lot of poor people suffering. We could invest more money there, but we don't. Um, I, I don't know how you define that. So, um that's my that's my response, Howard. How is this message received when uh, you go back and hang out with your Wall Street friends over a over dinner in Manhattan, and you bring up this three dimensional investing uh, <laughs> existence? I see. Have yours. Is that a setup? The I don't know. Is, potentially, I mean, it depends the where is you that take it. On one hand, I spend a lot less time with many of those people. Um, especially in a professional way, I can't. I don't. I, I can't stand being in a room that's just hedge fund people. Um, sometimes you have to be. Um, for example, I, I joined the board of One Percent for the Planet recently, and I, it's on the back of my iPad. And somebody in, a, in a, an investment banking meeting saw it. We talked about it, and they couldn't fathom the idea that I would give one percent of the revenue of my business to not for profits that focus on the environment. Um, but I also, for the people who I care enough about to still spend some time with, or my lovely wife, who's a much nicer person than me, still wants to retain the friendship, um, we end up having long, loud conversations about these issues because I'm dedicated and devoted and hopeful that I can get some of these people to think a little bit more about what they do. For me, it's about what you do every single day. You know, that we can joke about the thing or not, but it's a messaging, right? And how you fly and what you buy, how many clothes that you buy. There are lots of things to talk about. Um, so I spend less time with those people. And when I do, I tend to engage, if not battle. How's that? Pretty good. I just hear curious. Do you, do you find yourself more on the, um, like how much energy uh, or like, I mean, how much of openings do you see, um, when you started this journey to impact versus now within that one dimensional finance space, do you, are people coming up to you more often now than they were previously and wanting to learn more 
as a result, or do you feel like you still have to beat the preacher drum and saying, guys, please follow me into the desert? Um, I mean, there is something here. I'd say the answer, the answer is there are those who will not be swayed. There are those who believe that investing is investing and charity is charity. And, and whether I know them or not, whether I meet them in a social context where we can have a more active conversation, as I've been told, maybe because I have no filter. Um, or there, But at the same time, it's in the news every day. The work of Ride to Railroad is more widely known. And it's pretty common for me for somebody to reach out. There's a guy I hired on my trading desk in 1985 or 86. Just lost his job. Reached out. You know, the email was like a voice from the past. I haven't spoken to him in 20 years. He's ready for his next thing. And he wants to do something that's better. And he's been following me, whether he sees it on LinkedIn or wherever he's heard about it from other people. So there are people who are open to it and come to me as a bridge, as the person that they know they're doing it. But there are plenty of people who I try to engage them and, and they have no interest. So I, I think it's just a mix. I don't think there's a single answer. Look at, see, um, I mean, Howard's a midwife and he just didn't know it. But you're a cultural midwife, Howard. I mean, you're birthing life here, new life. There we go. I think that's a role of gratitude rail. I think for Eric and I both, one of the most rewarding things that we do is bring people to this space. I always like to quote, there's a member of our group, one of our partners who came to his first conference and we gathered at the end of the conference, he stood up to say, this was like a shot of WD-40 for my rusting brain. And that's what we want to do. And that's, that's the really most rewarding part of our work for me is to take somebody who's been a conventional business person, investor, who's been seeking for something, and now they find a way to use what they've learned with meaning and value. Thanks, Howard. That's a nice internal summary of what you uh, touched on this past hour. Eric, do you have something to uh, share on your end as we uh, wrap up the um, conversation? No, I just, I think it's, you know, uh, trying to share sort of my own internal struggles. I, I, I think it's an interesting way to phrase the question the way you did, like, where am I, what am I thinking and where am I and what stops me versus how do I think about or what am I doing out in the broader world to try to move the ship a little bit because uh, I struggle because I think sometimes they're different. Um, I don't know if I like that they're necessarily different, but it's an, it, it's, it's an interesting way to phrase the question because I struggle with it. Right. I struggle with sort of me and my example and what do I do and how do I live it um, versus how do I meet somebody where they are and bring them, bring them on the path of the journey a little bit further than wherever they are. Anyway, interesting questions. Well, thank you so much, um, Howard and Eric. Um, again, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Howard Fisher and Eric Jacobson of Gratitude Railroad. Guys, I want to thank you so much, and hopefully you enjoyed the hour just as much as I did. Thank you very much. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks, Gino. I hope to see you soon, Gino. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.